potential to awaken which exists in all of us. It's important to understand that it does exist in all of us. A Tibetan Lama has written, self-existing wakefulness has been present within the mind stream of all sentient beings since primordial time. This potential to awaken exists in all beings. Anyone who has a mind has this potential to awaken. But in reflecting on Christina's talk last night, I, I was thinking today about how our culture doesn't really recognize yet, perhaps we are in the process of creating a new archetype in this culture, or even a new path of awakening. Right now, our culture doesn't really recognize this path of awakening to this self-existing wakefulness or Buddha nature, you could say. You know, if you went down to the gas station in Barrie and said, well, where's the local saint? They would look at you with probably some amazement. Whereas if you were in India and you went into any small town and asked that question, people would light up and give you very vivid directions or even take you there themselves because in Asia or in India particularly, the local saint is something people all know about and all are as proud of as we are of our um, baseball and football teams. <laughs> By that I mean that they are very much a part of the culture and that the story of awakening is very, is very much a story that people can relate to in Asia. The story of awakening is really not so recognized in this culture. I know for myself growing up, um, there were very few role models and yet for this path, and yet I remember as a child uh, sitting in the Presbyterian Church, um, hearing stories about the apostles and all these people who had had direct experiences of God, and I thought, oh gosh, that that sounds great. That's for me, you know. Um, I'd like to have that too. So I remember sitting in church with my parents and praying really hard that, you know, I would be able to speak to God. I thought, well, if they can do it, I can probably do it. But nothing ever happened, and I was very disappointed in that because I wanted some sort of direct revelation. And then I went to summer camp when I was in the 10th grade. It was a music and arts camp, and we put on a, a production that summer of St. Joan. I had never had any theatrical aspirations, but I got chosen to play St. Joan. <laughs> And so in playing St. Joan, I became very aware of this young woman of a great deal of spirit and mystical vision who had all these direct experiences of God talking to her and hearing, feeling God's presence through the church bells and through being in nature. And so, you know, being a budding actress, I really wanted to get into the part and I'd go out and begin to talk to God and it was great. I thought, oh, this is what I was looking for in church. However, you know, her story is not the happiest one. <laughs> 
And it became rather clear to me that perhaps this path was a dangerous one. Perhaps talking to God could get you into a lot of trouble. So my search for the spiritual went underground for many years, and um, I, I kind of gave up on that part of my life and took up instead the path of the self, trying to figure out who I was. And I went into therapy and eventually even got a PhD in psychology and really took up this whole study of the self. And I think this is kind of typical of a lot of us in, in, the, in lacking a really um, genuine path that we can see and, and that is around us. It seems like the thing to do in our culture is to take up this path of the self, to feel that we need to perfect and improve and perform and get this really kind of dazzling, wonderful self together. Or we just hope that we'll get by and make do with what we have. I remember one of Lily Tomlin's characters, I'm not sure which one, said, I always wanted to be someone, but I guess I should have been more specific. <laughs> Our culture glorifies this appearance of self through advertising, through the media, and you will see, as you leave retreat and go back out there into the world of the media, how these images of self are all around us and how mesmerized we get by presentations of the self. The beautiful people with dramatic, interesting lives, the wealthy, glamorous, entertaining, or perhaps dangerous, powerful, mysterious people who take over our, the images in magazines and television and influence our impression of what this life is about. We are dazzled and befoozled by the appearance of so many interesting selves, and especially the, the well-dressed and char charismatic ones. I came across a quote on my computer. I have a little Mac PowerBook, you know, and when it's resting, it comes up with all these quotes. And one I just thought was lovely. It was a quote by Mark Twain who said, clothes make the person. Naked people have little or no influence on society. <laughs> I'd actually never thought of that before, but when I did think about it, I thought, you know, he's right. <laughs> to be a remarkable self seems like the highest good in our culture. We have very little vision of our potential for profound mystical insight. There's a story about a, an Indian saint by the name of Ananda Maya Ma, who was a, very well known as saints are in India and had quite a following. She spent most of her life in a simple room and all of India came to visit her. She was a remarkable being. One day she was visited by a group of very powerful and influential politicians and their families and they came into her room and they saluted her and they said, we have come to see you because you are a great renunciate. At that point she started laughing. 
She laughed and laughed and laughed. She started just rolling around. She was rolling around on the ground, just laughing hysterically. And they were all like, they had no idea what she was doing. Finally, she stopped laughing and she looked at them and she said, you, you who have given up the knowledge of God, the service of God, the love of God, you are the great renunciates. I salute you. Or like Ramakrishna, who said, people weep rivers of tears because they don't have a child or can't get money. But who sheds even one teardrop because she has not seen God? By coming on retreat and taking up this practice, we are cultivating confidence, actually, in this capacity to awaken and this capacity to live in accord with our, the understanding which comes from, wake, from wakefulness, to live a story not of improving upon or striving to be perfect, a dazzling, remarkable self, but rather a story of awakening. We see this beginning to happen on retreat in the aloneness and silence of a meditation retreat, we are thrown back on our inner resources. You have all, in the days you have spent here, been thrown back on yourself time and time again. And that's a good thing, really, because in the silence and in the aloneness of a retreat, things begin to awaken, a capacity that perhaps we haven't appreciated before. There you are sitting in silence on your cushion, and perhaps there are times when you're calm, perhaps there are times when you are sleepy or restless, or times when you are craving, or times when you are feeling absolutely you're going to go out of your mind and you're starting to freak out. And what happens? What happens? What keeps you sitting there? I mean, we haven't nailed you to your zafus. We haven't chained you to the room. There's, at any moment, you have this freedom to get up and walk out. What happens is this inner teacher, this inner sense of wakefulness begins to come alive, begins to have a voice, actually, and says things like, just come back, begin again just one breath at a time, just feel what's happening, no need to hold on. We haven't actually mentioned, or I haven't mentioned, what I call the Vipassana Mantra, which you say with your hand on your heart, it's okay, it's okay. The voice of this inner teacher begins to awaken as we practice. And through all the ups and downs of practice, you begin to become your own best guide, coach, therapist, friend. In aloneness, this inner teacher begins to awaken. And it, it is begins to be heard and you begin to actually respond to what it tells you. Now there are a lot of voices inside so it's important to understand that the voice of the inner teacher is not the voice of the judge, it's not the voice of the slave driver, it's not the voice of the critic 
or the voice of the comedian or the complainer or the cynic or any of those other voices, but it's the voice of confidence and compassion, the voice of kindness and patience and confidence. So we begin to discover this capacity in ourselves, and it does bring confidence. Now, confidence in meditation practice is actually quite different from what we may ordinarily think of as confidence. In meditation practice, confidence does not rest in our ability to compete or to win or to attain some desired result. Meditation is not a competitive sport. The confidence which comes from meditation does not come from analyzing or trying to figure things out or thinking about the teachings. The confidence we need in meditation does not lie in somehow doing it right. True meditation is not so much a technique, but a way of seeing and being grounded in insight and generosity. The confidence we need in meditation is not found in our ability to control our experience or our world based on our likes and dislikes. The confidence we find in meditation is not based in our views and opinions our treasured beliefs about everything, but in our capacity to see those views and opinions for what they are. Look at all the energy in the world we put into trying to be right, trying to be right. We are often very invested in our beliefs and opinions. It is often we, the thing we take refuge in in the world. They give us some sense of confidence. Well, I've got the right opinions. In meditation practice, we're not looking for a doctrine to believe in or a teacher to surrender all our problems to, but rather we are looking to a way of seeing and being which empowers us actually to be more tolerant, to be more open-minded, less needy, of opinions and beliefs, the need to be right, more confident in the simplicity of our ability to see clearly for ourselves. We talk a lot in this practice about the virtues of not knowing, of letting go of our opinions and beliefs. Don't seek for the truth, only cease to cherish your opinions. One of the Zen patriarchs tells us, when we take refuge in open-mindedness, in not knowing, we open to possibilities that would have passed unnoticed had we been tied to our opinions and conclusions. We begin to have confidence in this simple capacity A lot of time in our worldly life, our confidence is built on our ability to be in control, to be in charge, to have it all together. Again, meditation challenges this. 
Needing to be in control all the time is actually a tremendous burden. We find in meditation through this path of awakening that we can drop this approach. We can learn to trust more in spontaneity, improvisation, allowing the unexpected. We don't always have to have an agenda. So often in worldly life, our confidence is based on our performance, how we are doing. Are we winning? Are we succeeding? Are we doing it right? Are we failing? Again, it's often the shaky sense of self which impels us to focus on the performance, on the results. (coughs) Meditation instead focuses us on the process. We begin to experience ourselves more as verbs than as nouns. We are not winners, we're not losers, we're not um, any of those nouns, but rather we are a process of thinking, breathing, resisting, struggling, letting go, opening, closing, exploring, inquiring, reflecting, being, knowing. In encouraging greater attunement to this process of our lives, This can actually allow us to be more curious about life, to see life as exploration, as play, as inquiry, so that no one moment is ever the defining moment of our lives, forever defining us as a winner or a loser. Every moment of our lives is seen as part of a much larger process. Also, in worldly life, our confidence comes often from the content of our story. We all want to be in a story where we're successful, where we're loved, where we feel secure, creative, healthy, empowered. We don't want to be in a story where we are disempowered, despised, ill, homeless, on and on. So we judge ourselves based on the content, often, of our minds. You know, we think I'm not doing well in meditation because I have such wretched thoughts. But then we find over time that the confidence that we are doing well in meditation comes not because we have uninterrupted, peaceful thoughts of loving-kindness, or fantasies of being a bodhisattva, but because we can meet whatever arises with clarity and balance of mind. In meditation, we need to cultivate another kind of confidence, the confidence in our innate capacity, this self-existing wakefulness to be aware, to see clearly, to open our hearts, and to know things not as we want them to to be, but as they actually are. This is a tremendous and life-changing step. And it happens slowly as we sit here, moment to moment. So this capacity to awaken is based in our confidence that that is cultivated as we sit. 
Some of you may know the story of the Buddha on the night of his awakening. It's a beautiful story, so I'd like to share it with you because it illustrates the kind of confidence that we need in meditation. Now the Buddha-to-be sat down under the Bodhi tree one night and determined not to arise until he had found enlightenment, until he had found freedom. He brought the full power of his mindfulness to his practice, but he was not without thought. In fact, as he sat there, just as when we sit, he experienced many very intense and distracting mind states and feelings and thoughts. This is sometimes visually represented as the armies of Mara, demons with all kinds of weapons which Mara was throwing at the Buddha. Maybe sometimes it's visually represented as these weapons being thrown, but when they hit the aura of the Buddha, they magically transform into flowers. The weapons that Mara was throwing at the Buddha are all the hindrances of mind which keep us bound. So that as he sat, sat there, lust arose, fear arose, anger arose, boredom and sloth arose. But the Buddha-to-be was not dissuaded. How did he greet these disturbances? Well, he did not, at the first sign of fear, say to himself, Forget this, I'm going back to the palace. He did not, at the first sign of boredom, say, Life is too short, why should I spend it suffering? He did not, at the first sign of lust, say, Clearly I'm not cut out for this meditation scene, it's too dry, I'm a man with needs to fulfill. He did not, at the first sign of anger, say, I can't take it anymore, I wonder what's on at the movies, you know. What did he do? He sat there where he was, minute by minute, hour by hour, and at each arising mental state, he saw clearly into the nature of what was arising, the nature of lust, the nature of boredom, the nature of fear, the nature of anger, so that he could say when each arose, I know you fear. We are old friends. We have met many times before. I know you fear. I know you anger. I know you boredom. You can't fool me anything anymore. You have a compelling story to tell but I see through you. I know that you are impermanent. I know that you are illusory. You are only visitors. You do not belong to me. In short, he could see through each story into the actual nature of each mental state, just as we have been doing here. This is our practice, moment to moment, to see things in their actual nature, free of our tendency to elaborate. This confidence 
in our capacity to, you could say, almost like dehypnotize ourselves. It's like we are hypnotized by all these strong mental states. And as we sit, we develop this capacity to dehypnotize ourselves, to see through all the appearances, all the illusion of how things appear and how they actually are. A metaphor that's sometimes presented in teachings is that of, it's like walking down a path at twilight and in the path in front of you, you suddenly see a large snake. And if you don't get so lost in fear and reaction to the snake, but you stand there and you really pay attention and look at it very closely, you begin to notice perhaps that this snake is not moving. So then you look a little bit more closely and you see that, oh, it's not a snake at all. It's a rope. It's not a snake. It's only a rope. What a relief. Now, where did the snake and the fear of the snake come from? It's not like there was a snake and then it turned into a rope, but there never was a snake. It was all a production of our own mind, a projection of our own fear. Now, in practice, we can see that we do this a lot, that we project into our practice all kinds of hopes and fantasies, expectations, fears, thoughts of the past, thoughts of the future. And as we practice, all of this comes into light. We begin to see that all the snakes that we imagine are only ropes. Thoughts are not real, they are just thoughts. We begin to see and know our projections for what they are. And so our belief in their reality diminishes, and our fixation on them also diminishes. Carl Jung said, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. And that is our practice, really, bringing all of these unknown projections of mind into consciousness. And we all have the capacity to do this, to awaken, to make the darkness conscious, to see things as they are. As we practice, our confidence to meet whatever arises with this wakefulness grows. To awaken in one moment is to be able to awaken in every moment. And this moment is always now. You could say the beginning of the path of awakening is now. The middle of the path of awakening is now. And the fruition of the path of awakening is right now. A Mahayana Sutra says, when there is no clinging in the mind, how can one talk about a level to be attained? 
In every moment of non-clinging and non-dwelling, we have arrived home. The capacity to be awake, it's always with us. This is what we will take with us when we leave tomorrow. It is not dependent on a posture. It is not dependent on your being here in this building or at IMS. It is not dependent on anything. It is always with you. It is our good friend, and we can use it to see through all of the appearances of this world. And the appearance of self in its dazzling, amazing display as the most magical of all appearances in the world. If we can see a thought as a thought, then we can see through all the appearances of self, no matter how elaborate or mesmerizing, because the self, that which we give so much power in our lives, when we really look, what do we find? This self is just a thought, a thought of I am. I am this, I am not that, I never, I always, I need, I must, I have, I will. And as we explore this amazing appearance and construction of self, we begin to see that to have to construct a self, to walk the path of self, to have a self to assert, to protect, to defend, is actually a tremendous burden. It's actually a tremendous burden. That to abide in non-dwelling is a happier condition than any amount of self-aggrandizement, self-success, self-failure, whatever. To abide in non-dwelling is a happier state. We can learn from Sisyphus, Sisyphus, the myth of Sisyphus. This is an adaptation of the myth by Stephen Mitchell. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rocks sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it. He doesn't realize that at any moment he is permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. This is really the story of all of us thinking that we have to carry around this construction of self not realizing that at any moment we can put it down. We can put our burden down. I once was sitting here at a three-month course, and there was a teacher here by the name of Munindraji, an Indian man. And he said in a Dharma talk one night something that I have never forgotten, that has been very valuable in my own practice and that I have shared a lot lot in my teaching, and I know some of you have heard it. 
But he said, he said, you know, the thought of your mother is not your mother. This is a wonderful teaching. You know, we all think, okay, the thought of my mother is not my mother. We think we know our mother, and we think that if we think about our mother enough, we can probably accurately describe her. But he was saying no thought about your mother, no matter how precise or accurate or elaborate, can ever describe her in her suchness. In the same way, we can say to ourselves, the thought of myself is not myself. So I offer this teaching to you for you to explore, to experiment with. What if you went through the next hour or the next day or for the rest of your life for that matter, not believing any of the thoughts that you have about yourself? What would that be like? What would that be like? Frightening? Relieving? What would that be like? Try it as an experiment. What you discover is how many conclusions about who we think we are we're constantly arriving at. And the point of the experiment is not to do away with all your conclusions, but rather to see this activity for what it is without needing to believe all those conclusions. In the Avatamsaka Sutra, it says, having no view of self, one is always peaceful. Having no view of self, one is always peaceful. Not having a self to defend, to protect, to assert, to perform. One remains peaceful. Not constructing a belief which solidifies a view of ourselves or others is actually a great act of compassion. An act of compassion to ourselves, an act of compassion to others. By not constructing walls of separation based on our views, our opinions, our judgments, our conclusions, we leave ourselves open for a freer flow of empathy and connection. This is actually the heart of spiritual understanding, moving from identification with views about who we are and who others are to no view, staying open, staying present. After the Buddha's awakening, he was seen walking down the road and people were very struck by his radiant appearance. And so they asked him, they said, who are you? are you? He must have looked amazing. He said, they said, who are you? He replied very simply, I'm awake. He didn't say, I'm the Buddha now, <laughs> bow to me, or I'm a great arhat, or I'm a great yogi, or I'm a great meditator. No, he just said, I'm awake. He had abandoned all views of self. 
So we have the potential to walk a path of awakening, to challenge this construction of self, to free ourselves from thinking that life is about perfecting, striving, improving, constructing a dazzling, perfect self. This is the path of awakening. This is the path of freedom. So let's sit together for a moment. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society on July 29, 1995. It is an offering of the dark. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.